Uh, 2,000 years ago, people experienced the things that Jesus did and said as really good news. That he had, had announced something or revealed something or that something was happening in him that was profound and important and essentially good. And then one of the places where we read an accounting of that good news is a, a gospel text called Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew says that Jesus was going around announcing the good news, and the good news that he announced was what was called the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God, which seems to be a way of saying that God actually wants to give God's life to you, that God wants to live God's life through you. And the way that Jesus begins to explain the nature of that is with the blessings that he gives at the beginning of Matthew where he says, all of you who have a poverty within you, who have been poured out and depleted and emptied and broken, he says, I call you blessed. I actually think that you have access to the best possible kind of life because God wants to give God's life to you. And all of you who are weeping with loss, who have had something taken from you, whether it's a dream or a loved one or a future that you were hoping for or a sense of safety, the things that you have had taken from you are not enough to defeat the gift that God wants to give you because God wants to give God's life to you and so you will find a comfort in that. And he speaks to the meek, to those who don't have the capacity to take for themselves the things that they need. Maybe you feel like things have been ripped out of your hand, the provisions that you need for yourself, the ways of caring for yourself that you just don't seem to be able to acquire for yourself. And he says, I call you blessed because God's life is so good and so available to you that you will find yourself inheriting with an open hand all the things that you need. He speaks to those who are aching for things to be made right within them or around them, for righteousness and justice to be set loose in the world. And he says that, 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 that hunger in your belly that you feel for those things, that parched feeling in your mouth that makes you thirsty for these things, he says, I actually believe that you will be filled because God wants to give God's life, not just to you, but to the world, and God will do it. And he goes on and speaks to the merciful, calling them to mercy. He speaks to the pure in heart, saying, don't let your heart be corrupted by all the cynicism in the world, but continue to see God in even the dark corners. He speaks to the peacemakers who, in their convictions toward love and healing, have had to leave behind the group identities that they were bound up in, and the groups that they have left behind see them as a traitor, and the groups that they were trying to reach out to see them as an enemy, and they find themselves in that no man's land. And he says, that's okay because you will be called a child of God, and you will experience a kind of belonging that cannot be taken away by any group that excludes you or sees you as an enemy. And finally, he says to the persecuted, to the people whose lives are so potent in the world for good that evil has to come after them. He says to them, I call you blessed because yours is the life of God. And perhaps the way you know that yours is the life of God is that evil has have to come after you. Like evil with its limited resources has decided to marshal its limited arsenal of tools against you because your life is a location where God is living God's life for good in the world. This is good news because it, it demonstrates an arc that like, that there's no deficit of experience or identity or history or character. There's no deficit of strength or will or personal power that can overcome the, the power of God giving God's life to us. And so like, what he seems to be asking us for is simply open-hearted relationship with this possibility. Just a, a trusting disposition toward that gift that God wants to give through our lives. And then the next thing that's interesting is after Jesus gives this opening salvo talking about our life with God, the, these profound, weighty blessings about God giving God's life to us, the next thing Jesus does very quickly is he turns from our life with God to our life with one another. And we've, we've already heard some of that. And so he speaks 
immediately after talking about God giving God's life to us, then he speaks of things like anger and contempt and reconciliation. And today we're going to look further, just briefly, uh, about a couple of the other ways that he speaks about our life with one another. Today, we're talking about lust and divorce. So it's going to get spicy in here. (laughs) We're going to just do this uh, briefly, but I think we want to hear these words for a moment. Let me show you what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Here Jesus is referring to the, the law that God gave the Hebrew people, the Israelites, back in like the book of Exodus. So you've heard this from the scriptures. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Does that feel like good news? I know. This continues to be the feeling that I have as I'm working through the Sermon on the Mount. I hear this opening good news, and then I move further into the teachings, and it doesn't always feel like good news. And so let's just talk about this a little bit. Is this just like some challenging standard that feels really impossible for all of us who are normal human beings? Uh, Well, a couple of observations. First observation that's really important. Jesus is talking to people who are going to lust after other people. And he gives them a really stern word about that way of seeing other people, right? Did you notice that Jesus doesn't speak to the object of lust and tell them it's their job to not allow themselves to be lusted after by other people? This is an important word in the current context, uh, especially uh, for women, because like, there's a lot of discourse that's happened in Christian spaces that rather than taking Jesus' very clear teaching, that was a weird slip, <laughs> Jesus' very clear teaching... <laughs> Speaking, in, in this case, it's, it's a somewhat gendered sort of teaching, right? He's clearly, especially like, hey, men, like, you should not be lusting after women. And if you have a problem with that, you need to deal with your problem with that. It's not their problem. It's your problem. Word? All right, good. So that's the first observation. Uh, that's really important because way too many women in particular have been made to feel that who they are or what their body is or the way that they show up in the world is responsible for the bad decisions that men have made, and that's not okay. And Jesus doesn't seem to have any thought of that in the teaching that he gives on these things. All right, moving on. Uh, What about like the challenge of raw attraction? We had the same question when we heard Jesus' teaching about anger, right? I know, I know. When Jesus says, don't be angry, the first thought you might have is like, well, what do we do with anger? Because anger is part of being human. And here, like, you might be asking, like, is Jesus just talking about attraction? Are we supposed to pretend that doesn't happen? Well, but, like, the problem with that might be that you just end up with a kind of repressed relationship with a very normal human part of yourself and the way that you see, like, people around you, right? I mean, you, you do know, by the way, that, like, your capacity to be attracted to another person is good and normal and even sacred, I mean, like, if we didn't have the capacity for that kind of thing, we wouldn't all be here today now, would we? Right? (laughs) Like, we need to call out the fact that, like, human beings are made uh, sexual. We're made for attraction. Uh, Like, our capacity to be attracted to somebody else is a gift. It's part of this larger package of human relationship. And I think it's inherently beautiful and powerful. And I think sometimes in preaching on things like lust, we almost imply that God thinks it's gross that we have that capacity, right? That's some of those thoughts that naturally sort of come up in the human mind when you, when you see another person. That the, the very fact that you are wired for those kinds of thoughts is somehow like off-putting to God. 
But like, I don't think that's the case here. I think Jesus is talking about something else. And to get at what I think he's actually talking about, uh, let me do a little bit of word work with you for a moment. Let me put a Greek word on the screen. This word is a, a fancy one. Let me get it right. Uh, I think it's pronounced epithemesai. You want to try saying that? No, don't, because that could go badly. I'll just say it for you. Epithemesai, okay? Um, the reason I put this word in front of you is it goes back to the text that Jesus is working with when he says things like, you have heard it said. So hang with me for a moment. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, he's quoting from the Old Testament Ten Commandments, like in the book of Exodus chapter 20, right? Well, the Old Testament Ten Commandments at the time of Jesus had been translated into Greek, and the person writing Matthew's gospel would have been familiar with the Greek translation of those Old Testament commandments, right? And this word epithemesai is the word used for not lusting here in the book of Matthew. So when Jesus says, I don't want you to lust over another person, he says, I don't want you to epithemesai over another person, okay? Well, this word epithemesai also shows up in the Greek translation of those 10 commandments that Jesus is referring to when he does this teaching. And I want to show you the place where it shows up here. This is in the book of Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, where we read, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The thing that Jesus is drawing on when he talks about lust and adultery and, and relationship with one another, uh, this word covet or epithemesai, it doesn't just mean to have a, an attraction thought toward another person. It doesn't just mean to have a sexual thought about another person. It means to have the kind of thought that brings with it an intent to possess. You know what I mean? When, when you move from a, a feeling or a thought that just sort of like bubbles up within you to a desire to have that, and when you nurse that desire to have that, that seems to be the thing that Jesus is talking about. And it's really important to call this out because if we let Jesus lead us into some kind of repressed culture, like other really messed up things happen. Here's an example. Do you know that pornography usage is higher in the Bible Belt than anywhere else in the country? Did you know that alcoholism occurs more frequently among pastors than everybody else in the country? It seems that uh, prohibitive cultures breed a toxic relationship with the thing prohibited. And if we just take Jesus' teaching on lust and like, try to pretend that we don't have natural thoughts and feelings of attraction toward other people, we're just going to be complicit in that kind of repressive, prohibitive stuff that breeds a more toxic relationship with those things. We don't have time to recount all the headlines that keep coming out about like, clergy and other leaders who seem to have clearly repressed some stuff and then it comes out sideways, right? I don't think Jesus is calling to repression. I think he's calling us to something else. I think he's aware of the problems that happen when we decide that you are, like when I, when I decide that you are for my possession, you are for my use, you are for my gratification, you are for my exploitation, you, you are an object that's here for something that does something for me. I think that seems to be the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about, which might be why the word that we have in Jesus' teaching goes back to that text about coveting, about wanting something that isn't yours for your sake, for your gratification. Does that make sense? Um, Jesus, we, we looked at this when we talked about anger and, and murder and contempt. Jesus seems throughout his ministry to be painfully aware, deeply aware of, of what the scripture teaches about humanity. Like, remember last week we looked at Matthew 9, 6, and we read there when the people are coming off the ark, 
that murder is prohibited not just because murder is bad, but specifically here, whoever sheds human blood by human shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. Like all these teachings, Jesus seems to be working out the idea that God is giving God's life not just to you, but to your neighbor. God has given God's image not just to you, but to your neighbor. And so our life with God is going to be mediated in our life with one another, which makes it wholly inappropriate to see another human being as an object for your gratification, as a thing for us to possess rather than to honor. And so uh, it's no wonder to me that Jesus has a problem with the kind of um, ruminating that happens in our minds and the kind of actions that come from that kind of ruminating that we call lust. Now, um, I'm going to move from the text for a moment and propose a possibility for all of us who might find this to be a difficult teaching. Well, like, lust is essentially a use of the imagination, right? Well, what if instead of trying to shut down the use of the imagination, you just redirected it and employed it in, in a redemptive way when you find yourself struggling with those kinds of thoughts or feelings about another person, right? Let me propose two simple ways of redirecting the use of the imagination when you find yourself struggling to take seriously Jesus' command about how we think about one another. First this, and actually uh, a very, 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 very prominent pastor shared this with a friend of mine, and I thought it was really useful until that very prominent pastor was found out to have not followed his own advice. But the advice he gave the friend of mine was, hey, if you find yourself like, you know, fantasizing about a thing you should not do or about a relationship that you should not have or um, making another person an object for your own gratification. His advice was, don't stop imagining. Imagine it all the way through. Like, keep going in that imagination beyond the one-night stand, beyond the flirtation, beyond the one bad decision. Keep imagining. What does it feel like to wake up the next day? Keep imagining. What's it like to, to carry that secret around with you? Keep imagining, like, what kind of harm might be wrought in the world or in your family or their family if you start by nursing that attraction and making them a possession and deciding that they exist for your gratification. Just, like, use the imagination to keep playing out that scenario. And that very faculty that God has given us that starts with its ability to tempt us toward lust might also be the tool that we can use to remind ourselves of the consequences that happen when we let that stuff like run wild in our lives. Like keep using the imagination. And also this, maybe use the imagination to help yourself remember that that's a whole person and not just an object that you were thinking about, right? So maybe you find yourself um, lusting after like a person, uh, nursing a kind of attraction that's inappropriate, and um, what if you use the imagination to remind yourself that's a, that's a whole person that you're thinking about, that you're objectifying. They have a history and a future. They're not just a body, they are a story. They're not just a body, they are emotions and desires of their own. Like, like what if you took this one-dimensional thing that you have fashioned in your mind that's there for your gratification and used your imagination to remember that they're more than the object that seems really satisfying to you right now? In fact, What if you used your imagination to remind yourself that there is something of God in that person? That God has given God's image to that person. That God is perhaps living God's life in that person. I mean, like, what a a beautiful, whole way to think about the people in our lives that we often treat as objects for our own use, right? Uh, By the way, I think this is the same kind of operative idea that happens 
to be expressed in what Jesus says next in Matthew 5. Let me go a little bit further here. He says, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, divorce is hard to talk about in church, right? Um, a friend of mine who's a preacher says, every time I preach about divorce, everybody hears the wrong thing. People who have been through a divorce hear shame, but that wasn't the message. And people who need to work harder on their marriage hear some permission, like, ah, give up. And people who have probably really, really important and ample reason to decide that the marriage is done here, that they need to keep showing up in a place that's abusive or not working or really wrong for them to be in anymore. So it's really complicated to talk about divorce, especially when Jay took too long on the announcements to give full time for the kind of like, space that we need to give to all of this. Um, but can I get, just give a couple of observations here? Um, first of all, the framework for divorce that Jesus is working in is a very patriarchal system where women are property and men are empowered. That's just a fact of the ancient world. Um, men at this time and in the ancient law are empowered to essentially dispose of a woman when they're done with her. In fact, the text from Deuteronomy that governs divorce basically says, if your wife no longer pleases you, then you hand her a writ of divorce. And, like, and that's it, and you, and you clean your hands of it. And then of course, you've then cut a woman off from um, the provision that she enjoys as a part of your household in a society that makes it much, 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 much easier for men to provide for themselves than women. And so like the levels of patriarchy and exploitation baked into marriage and divorce in the ancient world are manifold. And if there's anything Jesus seems to be doing here, he seems to be like trying to stick up for women who are very much the victims of the system of divorce that exists at the time. And again, if we keep seeing evidence of Jesus working out teachings that are predicated on the idea that God is living God's life in your neighbor. God has, has put God's image in your sister or your brother. God is somehow actually present in the life of the people that you want to exploit or use or dismiss or dispose of. If that seems to be the thread that keeps working its way out, that it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would look at a system of marriage and divorce that it basically takes women and makes them disposable to men who are done with them, and he has a problem with it. Uh, I think that's the thread here that we need to call out. Um, I know there are a lot of really painful marriage stories right here in this room. Um, there are marriages that are still together, but they're not working. There are marriages that have ended. Um, and there are really complicated feelings for many around like your own history with some of those things. Uh, I hear that. And I want to make sure you, like, you know that like, there's no heartbeat behind this teaching or this community that would ever want to put shame on you or that story. Uh, but I also think that like, it's really helpful to call out again in this moment the the power of, of sticking with a covenant um, unless you've got good reason to, to move on, right? Uh, every time I do a, a wedding ceremony and I officiate, um, I don't know if I've told you guys this, I cry at every wedding I officiate. <laughs> I usually cry before the bride and groom cry. I don't know what it is, except I think I do know what it is because I'm standing there and you, at this deep frequency level, you just feel the weight of these two human beings these whole people, right? Each one of them a whole person showing up with a history and a future, with this three-dimensional reality that is them, with God having given God's image to them, God living God's life through them. And you, so you sense the weight of these two individual people making this promise to one another. 
And then what I know and what you know is the promise that they are making is not going to be easy, <laughs> right? But to use like kind of churchy theological language, like we believe that marriage is a sanctifying thing. That to live up to that promise will help you grow whole and holy in really profound ways because you will have to love in ways that cost you something, right? I remember uh, growing up, every once in a while, like my mom or my dad, I, I would catch wind of the fact that marriage was hard for them sometimes. <laughs> and if I caught wind of the fact that marriage was hard for my mom or my dad on, on a certain day, when I was younger, that used to rattle me. I would think, oh no, is something wrong with mom and dad's marriage, you know, right? And later in life, I have come to cherish and celebrate some of the glimpses I've had into the ways that loving one another has not always been easy for them. Um, because it's precisely where love costs you something that love is beautiful and holy and sacred, right? And where to realize that this other human being that you are in relationship with, whether they're not your partner and they're just like the object of your lust from across the room or on a screen, or whether it's your marriage partner, to realize this other human being is a bearer of the sacred image of God. God is living God's life in this person. To honor them is to honor God. Well, that's beautiful work, isn't it? And whether it's Jesus calling us out of contempt and anger, like we heard earlier in the series, or today calling us out of lust and infidelity, I think again and again he is saying, God is living God's life in your neighbor, your enemy, your brother, your sister, your partner. God has given God's image to your neighbor, your sister, your brother, your enemy, your partner. And so to, to honor one another and to learn to live in right ways with each other is to honor God and to participate in that life with God. In fact, you might even say this, that, that curiously, people who are learning to see the image of God in others, and the very act of learning to see the image of God in others, are people who are beginning to live out the image of God in themselves. That there's something about God's life in you that is being expressed as you learn to see God's life in others. There's something about God's image in you that is coming to the surface when you learn to honor the God-given dignity of others. And so I think Jesus is not just concerned about us seeing God in others. He also, because he said, you, the kingdom of God is yours, the life of God is yours. Now he's trying to show us that the way that we see God in others is precisely the path through which God lives God's life in us. And he has such a high esteem for humanity. He has such profound belief in the possibilities of being human that he is calling us to things that do feel difficult, but I think these are promises and possibilities, not just heavy burdens for us to carry. So I don't know how you relate to others, whether it's your marriage partner or other people that you see across a room or frankly on a screen. I don't know in what ways um, you or I, or I, I mean, I, I do know the ways I, <laughs> I don't know in what ways you uh, most struggle with these temptations and challenges that Jesus puts in front of us, but I don't think he is trying to put a heavy burden on us. I think he is raising us up. And I think he knows that we are never, um, we are never worse than when we fail to see the image of God in others, and we are never better than when we are learning to see that. And that, in fact, when we do that, the image of God is being lived out in us. Um, that was a brief hit on these texts. Please hear me, if this raised any um, regrets or shame or uh, pain for you, um, there's space for that here and there's no judgment for that here. So when we talk about things like lust and adultery and divorce, there's just so many stories in the room. Uh, mostly I would just say you are in good company. We are all here together um, 
working out the challenges of being faithful to these ways of being human that bump into the broken places in others and ourselves. But I hope you know that um, there's a generous spirit in all of this and a, a graceful sense that we are all at a common table um, sharing these common struggles together. Right? Right? Okay. Uh, man, we did a lot today. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? Don't forget, if you'd like to uh, process a little further on the building stuff, Matt Grable will be up in the, the mezzanine after the gathering. If the stairs are a problem for you, there's a lift in the Northwest lobby to get you up to that level. And then uh, we'd love to keep hearing from you and we will keep letting you know what's going on. That being said, uh, as you look out upon the world, whether it's friends, neighbors, your partner, or someone on a screen, may you remember that you are looking at living, breathing bearers of the image of God. May we learn to honor one another, the wholeness of one another, the depth of one another, the dignity of one another. And may we discover that as we honor the image of God in others, the image of God is being expressed in us. For all the points of regret or pain that come around these teachings and stories, may we trust the heart of God revealed in Jesus who says no deficit or difficulty or regret renders you ineligible because God still wants to give God's life to you because God loves you and may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.